0: Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's Epistle to the Romans, chapter 11. Romans, chapter 11, and we'll be reading the entire chapter. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1007. Page 1007. Let's give a a careful attention to the reading of God's Word from Romans, chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. I say then, has God cast away His people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed Your prophets and torn down Your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek My life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, At this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, and bow down their back always. I say then, Have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, And you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, Branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in His goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree?" For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob." For this is My covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the Gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that He might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become His counselor, or who has first given to Him, and it shall be repaid to Him? For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen relying upon the Lord for His help and blessing this evening. Uh, Let's focus our attention on the passage that we just read from Romans, the 11th chapter. Especially verses 25 and the first portion of verse 26. Paul says this, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. Now, Paul is writing this epistle, obviously, as we've been considering it in our morning series. He's writing this epistle to the Romans. The Roman believers in the city of Rome. These are mostly Gentiles, although there is a sizable portion uh, of Jews in this particular region as well, in the Christian church, Christians of Jewish descent. And so he's writing to a church, and probably a collection of churches, perhaps an entire presbytery, of those who are wrestling with this dynamic of Jew and Gentile. Throughout the Old Testament, God's covenant people included some Gentiles, but predominantly it was the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Israelites. And over time that was whittled down to the kingdom of Judah to the south, and so they essentially were known as the Jews. And God established His kingdom in the Old Testament in a way that was centralized in the land of Israel and surrounded by Uh, all these other nations right there in the center of the world with no doubt a missionary uh, calling, but, but it was centralized within the land of Israel, the capital city of which was Jerusalem. And so God's dealings with mankind really flowed through the Jewish people throughout the bulk of the Old Testament. And all of this was, of course, leading up until the fullness of times when God sent forth His Son, born of a Jewish woman. Uh, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ, Uh, uh, the Root and the Offspring of David, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David, and uh, again, the the King of Israel, the King of the Jews. Uh, But of course, at this point, the Lord Jesus Christ established His kingdom in such a way that it expanded to all nations. He sent forth His apostles, all of them Jews, but he sent them forth to disciple the nations and to preach the Gospel to every creature and to take His law and His Gospel to the ends of the earth, the uttermost parts of the earth. And so Paul is writing to a church that is composed partly of believing Jews and partly of believing Gentiles all in the midst of this one cluster of churches in the city of Rome. And he's addressing the reality of this, what you could say is a problem. How do these two groups work together? You've got the Jews with their long-standing history in the covenant of God. And you have the Gentiles now being brought in with so many unbelieving Jews being cut off. And there's this turbulence and threat to the unity of the church. And the Apostle Paul is mindful of this. And so as he writes this letter to the Romans throughout, from beginning to end, he's dealing with these types of questions. He deals with the fact that the gospel is to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Uh, He deals with the fact that the Jewish Pharisees were promoting a false gospel, demanding Gentiles to be circumcised, and preaching uh, a, a righteousness of works rather than the righteousness of faith. He's constantly dealing with these types of issues. Now, we've said in the past that the structure of this epistle is really threefold. It begins in the first four chapters with a discussion of faith. Uh, Paul sets forth justification by faith alone, and he describes the necessity of faith, namely the, the doctrine of human depravity and sin. We need the righteousness of God through faith because we are unrighteous and liable to the wrath of God. And so he unpacks the Christian Gospel with this emphasis on faith, uh, the necessity of faith, the object of justifying faith, Christ Himself, chapter 3, toward the end there, after He's dealt with sin, uh, the demonstration of justification by faith alone as a biblical doctrine, which he addresses throughout chapter 4. But then, as we've seen in our morning series, he pivots to the doctrine of Christian hope. Not so much faith, trusting in what God has done and what Christ has accomplished, but now he pivots in chapter 5 to anticipating what God will do. And we've spent a number of weeks considering the Christian's hope, rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. And he shows that true faith begets true hope. We believe what God has done and now we anticipate what God will do. And he addresses that from the standpoint of the believer's sanctification. Uh, Chapter 6, he deals with the basis of our sanctification. We can expect to be sanctified. We can be confident and hopeful that because Christ has died and risen again, that we will, we shall die to sin and rise unto newness of life and sin shall not have the dominion over us. He deals with the extent of that sanctification that we're no longer slaves to sin. He deals with the conflict and imperfection of that sanctification in chapter 7 so that he's warning us here's something that you could say well you have this to look forward to maybe not but you you have something you need to anticipate that you're going to have imperfection in your Christian life. You're going to have conflicts with sin. You're going to do things that you don't want to do and vice versa. Chapter 7, he deals with that. And then in chapter 8, the substantial victory by the power of the Holy Spirit enabling us to kill sin. So we're hoping and anticipating and actively, patiently laboring to see these things come to pass. And then of course he deals with the, the consummation of our sanctification, which is glory. Glorification. And he says that the full manifestation of the children of God will come with the renewal of the creation at the last day. Chapter 8, verse 18 and following. And so, uh, he he goes through this theme to the point at the end of chapter 8 where he says nothing can separate us from God's love for us in Christ Jesus. So we can anticipate God's faithfulness and our own perseverance unto the end. But then he he takes a turn in terms of the, the aspect of hope that he emphasizes. In chapters nine through eleven, Paul is looking not individually at what the believer can expect in his or her personal Christian life, but he takes a, a corporate angle on hope. What is it that the Christian church can expect as it fulfills the Great Commission and preaches the gospel to every nation? What is it that we can expect in relation to the various nations and people groups? And especially with this distinction that's always in the background in this epistle, the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And so in chapter 9 through chapter 11, uh, he really describes for us God's purpose to bring an ingathering of all nations into the Christian church, both Jew and Gentile. And so in chapter 9, he shows the basis of this God's unconditional election. God has chosen all those that he's going to save, he's given them to Christ from before the foundation of the world. It's not as though, uh, you know, I believed and I repented, and therefore God cast a vote for me, Satan voted against me, and I cast the deciding vote. Uh, this is not Arminianism that Paul is proclaiming or Phineanism or something like that. He's saying it's not Him who runs or Him who wills or anything on our part that determines our eternal destiny, but rather God has chosen us before the foundation of the world. And He's, he's chosen sovereignly to give some over into their sin like Pharaoh, as it were, raising them up to manifest His justice and wrath and glorify Himself in destroying them for their sin. And He has made others vessels of mercy uh, to the unending praise of His name for His glorious grace. And all of this He establishes as the basis for the great ingathering of all nations Jew and Gentile. We see we can't fall into the, the error of looking at election and looking at divine predestination as something that somehow limits the full extent of gospel victory in the world. Far from it, it's it's quite the opposite. Paul uses that as the baseline, the foundation for what he's going to say in chapters 10 and 11. God's unconditional election, God's sovereignty is not something that turns the church into a few people huddled in the ark or something like that. But it's that which causes a whole innumerable company of the redeemed to be uh, filling the earth with the knowledge of God from every nation. And so the basis, but also the means, the means of this great gospel expansion to every nation, and that is the preaching of the gospel. Chapter 10. Now, he deals with the objection, the problem that people are raising, In chapter 9, why isn't Israel believing? God made promises to Israel and the Israelites, you know, Jesus came to His own and His own received Him not. And He uses election to show that not all who were Israelites were were truly believing. Not all in the visible covenant community were truly elect and believing. So He addresses that in chapter 9. In chapter 10, he explains that the means by which the nations will be converted is through the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. But he admits the Jews have rejected that as well. The gospel has gone forth to them, but they have not received it. They've rejected it. And so the gospel has gone to the Gentile nations. And at this point, he begins to address this issue. Full extent of the gospel. You would think after chapters 9 and 10 that he would be very pessimistic, you see, because, well, God chooses one and not another, so, well, that really limits things. And then, chapter 10, he uses the word of the gospel, and it's the power of God unto salvation. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word, but uh, Israel has rejected it. And the sound goes forth to the ends of the world, but Israel. Uh, is uh, a disobedient and contrary people. But in chapter 11, Paul explains that this is all part of God's plan for both the Jews and the Gentiles. That in fact, all of these events are being orchestrated in God's providence to bring about a great unprecedented expansion of the Kingdom of God on earth. And so he deals with this... So called problem of Israel rejecting the gospel. And you see in uh, chapter 11 and verses 1 through 10, you'll often see uh, paragraph headings, as I have in my own Bible. Israel's rejection, not total. Verses 1 through 10, he says, Israel has rejected the gospel for the most part. The bulk of the Israelites, most of the Jews, have rejected Christ. That's true. But he says there is at this present time, verse 5, a remnant according to the election of grace. So there are some believing Israelites. Paul himself would be one, and there would be others. Uh, Certainly the apostles, the rest of the apostles as well. Uh, There is at this present time a remnant according to the election of grace. And so some of the Israelites, a very scant few of them, are converted and are believers in Christ and remain in the covenant community. They haven't been cut off the olive tree. They're natural branches in the natural olive tree of God's visible church. And so it's not total. Israel didn't completely reject the Messiah. There are believing Jews and even to this day, there are, as it were, Jews for Jesus. Although we probably would have some problems with that organization itself. But Uh, there are Jews who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and hold to an evangelical, orthodox, biblical faith. So it's not total. Then in verses 11 and following, up through verse 29, the Apostle Paul says that Israel's rejection of the Gospel of Jesus Christ is not final. So, not only is it not total, there are some believing Jews, but it's not final. In other words, the unbelief of the comparative majority, the bulk of Israelites, their unbelief, their spiritual blindness, their fall from grace, their being cut off of their own olive tree. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the covenant community. Uh, That mysterious rebellion and apostasy against their own Messiah who came to His own, that rejection of Christ is not final. Verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? In other words, is this an irremediable situation or will Israel be restored? Have they stumbled such that they're cut off the olive tree and now they're just going to wither away or be thrown into the fire? Uh, No, Paul says, Uh, God is able to graft them in. He says, certainly not. Certainly not. They've not stumbled that they should fall. This is not a final rejection or apostasy for the ethnic people group of the Jews or the Israelites. He says, but through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So he says, the Jews have rejected the Gospel, and as the Apostles said, therefore they made themselves unworthy of the Gospel and grace of God, and so God went to the Gentiles with the Gospel through the Apostles. You see that in the book of Acts. Uh, But all of that, the Gospel going to the Gentile nations, was purposeful not only to save the Gentile nations, of course, but it was purposeful from this standpoint to provoke the Jews to jealousy. So God is not finished with the comparative bulk of unbelieving Jews, He has sent His church, His covenant community, to all the other people groups of the world to flourish and thrive and be a massive influence throughout the nations of the world for many centuries, for millennia, Uh, even since Paul's day. He's caused that to happen so that the Jews would become jealous, so that it would affect them. And I think it's fair to say that it has affected them, and, and it is a bit of salt in the wounds, and there can be... Uh, a a very strong sensitivity of Jewish people to the Christian gospel and to these kinds of things there's something there Paul as a Jew knows full well that it's very difficult perhaps for Jews to reckon with uh, the claims of Christianity Uh, Jewish people are far more likely to be offended by the claims of Christianity than than perhaps say Buddhism or some other uh, secular humanism or something like that Uh, But in any event, it's to make them jealous. He says, verse 12, now if their fall is riches for the world, so their rebellion brings the gospel to the Gentiles. We've seen 2,000 years of that dynamic in church history. If their fall is riches for the world, including us, including us right here, singing the songs of Zion in our worship service, most of us not descending from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet we're reading an epistle written by a Jew, and we're reading a Bible that uh, two-thirds of it is the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and so on and so forth. It's really kind of mind-boggling if you start thinking about who we are, where we are, and what we're doing. Uh, We have inherited riches on account of this pivot from Jew to Gentile. And if that's the case, if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles like us, how much more their fullness. Now this goes without saying, that uh, if the rejection of the Jews brought the Gospel to the Gentiles, what would happen if all of the Jews throughout the entire world converted to the Lord Jesus Christ? Not saying every single one, but let's say the bulk of the Jewish people in our day, if they en masse began to profess the name of Jesus Christ and confess true biblical doctrine, and begin to practice true biblical worship. Coming in, flooding in to the church of Jesus Christ in droves. Imagine the impact. In fact, Paul illustrates this. Uh, he says, verse fifteen: For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? He says it will be this massive corporate spiritual revival or revitalization, resurrection of the world at large, the nations of the world at large, uh, if and when the Jews as a people group are brought en masse to profess true religion and to embrace the lion of the tribe of Judah. What a world transforming development that would be. Now, uh, this was Paul's desire, this was his prayer. Romans 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. He doesn't just say individual Israelites, but he has a heart for his own people. He has a heart for his own countrymen according to the flesh, for his own ethnic nation, if you will not speaking there so much politically, but ethnically, his nation, his people group, he has a heart that Israel as a whole would be saved, would be a nation that is thoroughly discipled by the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we've said that he asserts that their rejection of the Gospel in the first ten verses of Romans 11 is not total. Then he goes on, Verses 11 through 29 to say that it's not final. Uh, You see, verse 26 will be highlighting all Israel will be saved. Uh, But then, in verses 30 and following, he tells us that Israel's conversion will not be isolated, that it will not be isolated. Uh, what, What he's In a number of these uh, verses, he's already implied that with the comment about life from the dead. Uh, But he's saying all of these things: Israel's rejection and then Israel's restoration. These things are not isolated. Uh, There's a there's a back and forth give and take among the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, Jesus came to his own first. The gospel is first to the Jew, then to the Greek. Paul, when he went to cities, would go to the synagogues first and declare Christ to the existing covenant people of God. And, and, and it went from uh, Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. It came to the Jews first. But then when the Jews rejected it, it went to the Gentiles. And then over time, the, the church becomes predominantly Gentile and all nations are flowing into it and the church is, is almost, in a sense, known as a Gentile religious body and then the Jews become jealous and God grafts them back in and then they're grafting back in uh, because they're jealous and and they come to faith then it's life from the dead for all the nations of the world Jew and Gentile there's there's a give and take it's not isolated the religious condition of both Jew and Gentile according to God's glorious providential plan these things are just inseparably connected And we have to understand that. We have to understand that. But we're focusing this evening on verses 25 and 26. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. Notice he's not bringing this truth of biblical eschatology, biblical prophecy, simply to puff them up with knowledge and and arrogance. But rather, he's bringing it for a very Uh, practical reason uh, because he's speaking to people in the church of Rome and and I think we understand and I think Paul understood providentially the importance of warning the church of Rome of the need to be careful that if they as a church as an institution uh, adopt unbelief instead of faith in the true gospel that they will be cut off as we see with the Roman Catholic papal apostasy throughout the generations. Uh, So he's warning them, he's saying, Church of Rome, recognize this could happen to you. And as he says elsewhere, as he implies in 2 Thessalonians 2, I think we can say this will happen to you, and this did happen uh, to the Church of Rome. Cut off because of unbelief from the visible church and from the olive tree. So he's warning them, humble yourself, examine yourself, Don't boast against the unbelieving Jewish natural branches that are cut off because this could happen to any visible church of Jesus Christ. Not that any believer can lose his or her salvation, but entire ecclesiastical institutions, uh, churches, can lose their place in the visible church. They can become synagogues of Satan. They can lose their candlestick. And so it was with the church of Rome. So understand as we're learning this, this this should humble us. This should not puff us up. Oh, I know what's going to happen in the end time. That's not why Paul's sharing this. He's saying, I don't want you to be ignorant of this because when you really think about it, it's extremely humbling. What God is doing here in in His providence and in this passage. But he says, uh, blindness in part has happened to Israel until... So the... Majority of Jews today are blind. That's been the case since Paul's day, down through the ages, even into our own day. Uh, Nothing has changed much since Paul's day in that respect. If anything, the church has become less Jewish, not more Jewish since Paul's day and since the days of the apostles. So, blindness in part, the large part, has happened to Israel, but notice, until. Blindness until until that period of time toward the end, as we get further along in the New Covenant period, uh, not necessarily the very end, but further along certainly than our own day, uh, until that period of time when the fullness of the Gentile nations has come in. Now, it's important to know that the term Gentile there means ethnic people group, nation. It does not mean individual Gentile. It's not saying until the full number of individual elect people comes in. That is not what Paul is saying here. That's not what that word means. It means nation. Not person or individual. But until the fullness of the nations has come in. And so until that time period that we've been studying in all of these sermons in our sermon series, until that time period when the Gospel disciples the nations in an unprecedented way and brings them That they flow into the church and into the holy mountain of God, Isaiah chapter 2, 1 and following. He says, around that time, not until that time, but at that time, when all the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, so all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. And that's really the key doctrine that he's pointing out in this entire section, in this chapter. All Israel will be saved prior to the Lord's return. At that period of time, we've been looking at throughout Genesis and Psalms and Isaiah and Daniel, when the kingdom of Christ fills the world with the knowledge of the Lord as far as the the waters cover the seas, around that time, all Israel will be saved prior to the Lord's Return. Now, what does this mean that all Israel will be saved? Let's, let's take a look at this. Uh, first, Israel. All Israel will be saved. As I mentioned, we're dealing here with the idea of ethnic groups. The Gentiles are ethnic groups, ethnic people groups. And so when Paul refers to Israel here, He's referring to them as an ethnic national people group. Not necessarily politically in in terms of, sometimes we think of a nation in terms of a nation state or a particular political government of a nation. But here we're thinking of Israel as an ethnic people group, uh, national or ethnic Israel in that sense. But it's very important what we're definitely Not seeing in this word Israel in verse 26 is the idea of spiritual Israel. Verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, cannot possibly, cannot possibly refer to spiritual Israel. It cannot possibly refer, as some have said, to the elect. As if Paul, after saying all this about ethnic Israel and the ethnic Gentiles, is now summing it up and saying a a sort of non-statement. All the elect will be saved. Well, we knew that. We could have ended that at the end of chapter 8. We knew that all the elect would be saved. You, You see, this word Israel has to refer in context, unless we just throw out all the rules of biblical interpretation, it has to refer to Israel as an ethnic national people group, not spiritual Israel in terms of the elect of God. And let's demonstrate that. Notice the consistent contextual usage of the term Israel as ethnic national Israel. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Now, in terms of A parallel passage in the context of our own passage. In that rough context of the book. You you can't do much better than this. What does it mean when Paul in, in this book of the Bible, in this section as he's building towards the end of chapter 11, what does he mean when he speaks of Israel being saved? Well, here he uses the exact same language and he says his prayer is that Israel would be saved. But here, he's not saying his prayer is that spiritual Israel, the elect, would be saved. Well, he knows that's the case. He's praying for his countrymen according to the flesh. He says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Is that spiritual Israel? That's ignorant of the gospel? For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So, these are unbelieving Jewish legalists. These are not spiritual Israel, the elect of God, who are ignorant of the very gospel itself. Uh, chapter 10, verse 19. But I say, did Israel not know? And he goes on to quote passages that speak of Israel as being unbelieving and rebellious. Uh, Verse 21, all day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Uh, When he says Israel, he's not referring to spiritual Israel, the elect, he's referring to unbelieving ethnic national Israel. Uh, You come to chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not for I also am an elect believer. No, he doesn't say that. He says, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. So here he's speaking of God not casting away His people entirely or totally as evidenced by the fact that Paul himself, an ethnic Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, has put his faith in Christ. So clearly Israel here or to be an Israelite, is ethnic and national. Uh, You can see this again in verse uh, 5. Even so, he says, at this present time there is a remnant according to the election of grace, and if by grace then it is no longer of works. He's speaking of elect uh, believers within the overall nation of Israel. But notice, verse 7, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. So, so he's actually using the word Israel not to describe the tiny elect remnant within Israel. He says, I'm going to speak of Israel in terms of the comparative bulk, the majority of them that are unbelieving. He says, Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it and the rest Were blinded, so he's using the word Israel to describe the rest that are blinded in contrast to the tiny remnant of believing Israelites. So Israel there is clearly ethnic and national. Uh, You you can see the verses he quotes in verses eight and nine also refer to unbelieving ethnic Israel. Then you go to verse eleven. I say, then have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. Who are we talking about? Israel. And who's Israel? The ones that stumbled through unbelief. Not the elect, but the ones who rejected Christ. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Okay, so if Israel is the elect, then who are the Gentiles that received the gospel, right? It wouldn't make any sense to refer to believing Gentiles here who received the gospel or received salvation because they would if we're thinking of election, they'd be part of elect Israel. They'd be part of spiritual Israel. So the fact that he's differentiating Jews and Gentiles, again, means his focus is ethnic and national. And so through these verses, he goes back and forth, speaking about Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles and Jews. You come to verse 21. Uh, He talks about how uh, God did not spare the natural branches. who, who, Who are the natural branches? Israel. And uh, what does that refer to? Their ethnicity, that they descend from the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's saying that, that the Gentiles, ethnically, are wild branches. They're grafted in. The unbelieving Jews are cut off. But then the unbelieving Jews, the Israelites, can be saved. They can be regrafted, the natural branches, into their own olive tree. Throughout the whole section, every reference to Israel is a reference to ethnic national Israel. Uh, Then we come, of course, to verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness in part has happened to Israel. So, this could not possibly refer to Israel as the spiritual elect of God. Spiritual Israel. Something like that. Israel here refers to those who were partially and temporarily blinded and therefore rejected the gospel down through the ages even to our own day. Israel has been partially and temporarily blinded. So it's not spiritual Israel, it's ethnic national Israel. And ethnic national Israel will be blinded until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in again gentiles that come into the olive tree would actually be spiritual israel but notice he's calling them gentiles as opposed to ethnic national israelites so again the focus is ethnic and it is national and so verse 26 and so as he's summing up he says and so so he's saying go back and look at everything i just said all the references in chapter 9 chapter 10 all throughout chapter 11. And so, look at all that I've been saying, the way I've been using this word Israel, all Israel will be saved. Uh, And then, of course, you have the context afterward. Verse 28. uh, Who are the Israelites that are being saved? Is it the elect, spiritual Israel? Or is it ethnic, national Israel? Well, verse 28. Concerning the gospel, they... That's referring to whoever's the recipient of all Israel being saved. Whoever that is, they concerning the gospel are enemies for your sake. Now, he would not say that about the spiritual elect of God or something like that. Okay, uh, Clearly, it's unbelieving ethnic national Israel. They are concerning the gospel. Enemies for your sake. They're promoting a false religion and they're persecuting God's people. But concerning the election, and this is referring to the corporate election of God's people, as Romans 9 says, Israel, even unbelieving Israel, had uh, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the promises. Uh, Israel was chosen as God's visible covenant community, and it says concerning that, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Again. Their forefathers. It's ethnic. It's national. They descend from the patriarchs, though they are enemies of the gospel. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That outward calling of Israel and the particular promises that he's referring to here of them being saved, these things are permanent, and God will fulfill them. So it's the consistent usage in the context, and we don't have time to get into the, the other portions of Scripture in any a great detail uh, that deal with this topic, but the overall biblical context, we've seen it in previous sermons. There are promises that God will gather uh, the nation of the Jews to Himself. We saw it in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 10-12 through 12, where both Ephraim and Judah and the nations of the Gentiles are brought in to the kingdom. We saw it in Isaiah chapter 19 Verses 23 through 25, where Egypt, Assyria, and Israel, all three are brought into covenant with God as ethnic people groups and as nations. And I think we can say perhaps there's something of a geographic reference there. These are nations that are adjacent to one another. Egypt, Assyria, Israel. Uh, And though we wouldn't put too much emphasis on the the modern-day Israeli state or advocate some sort of unbiblical form of Zionism, in god's providence it would seem from isaiah 19 that when this is fulfilled there will be israelites in the middle east with nations that will be adjacent to the egyptians and the assyrians and they'll all profess faith in christ uh, jesus in matthew 23 verse 29 or 39 we saw last time tells the unbelieving jews of his day your house is left you desolate you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus prophesied to his own ethnic people group, the Jews, that one day before his return, they as a nation, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who stones the prophets, Jerusalem herself and the nation of the Jews will be brought back to faith in Christ. And the apostles expected this. They were paying attention to these kinds of things. And so, in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, uh, during the period between our Lord's resurrection and ascension, we're told this, that the disciples asked Him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in His own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to Me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, it's significant. Jesus doesn't say, no, I'm never going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Don't you understand covenant theology? He doesn't say that. Uh, He doesn't rebuke them for the question itself in terms of the expectation that the kingdom of God will be restored among the Israelites, but he simply says it's not for you to know when this is going to happen. Uh, God the Father has put this in His own authority, but it's not for you to know when He's put it in His authority. It's for you to go out and preach the gospel to every creature and follow the Great Commission and it's reserved for God's perfect timetable when all Israel will be saved. So this is part and parcel of of the biblical expectation for the new covenant age if we look at other scripture references. And also, this is a great mystery. Understand that all the elect would be saved, though we could say, of course, there's mystery in all of these things. At this point in Paul's epistle would not be very mysterious. And it's not something that they would be in danger of being ignorant of, certainly, because he's already dealt with election and he's already dealt with the fact that all God's elect will be saved, chapter 8. But what they are in danger of being ignorant of and what is a great mystery, even at this point in his epistle, is the fact that uh, all the Jews who currently reject God's covenant who have been cut off the olive tree, who have rejected the Jewish Messiah, if you will, that first of all, that's a mystery. And it is a mystery. It's a mystery because you would think the people who are who are part of the Lord Jesus Christ's own family, His own people group, His own people, you would think they would be the first to embrace the fact that the global Savior is of the tribe of Judah. You'd think they'd be the first to embrace. So that's a mystery in itself. But the fact that throughout the ages they would be one of the greatest opponents of the gospel and then they would be converted in great numbers. This is a mystery. This is a great mystery. And that's why Paul uses that language. So this Israel is a reference to ethnic national Israel. Secondly, all Israel... And by this he means the predominant whole. The comparative bulk. Uh, This is all Israel as opposed to a mere part or a tiny remnant. And you can see this in context. We've, We've already seen it. Chapter 11 and verse 5. He says there is at present a remnant. There is a remnant. So what's the opposite of the remnant? Well, the comparative bulk or the 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 nation or ethnic people group of the Jews considered as a whole, the vast majority of them are not part of the remnant. And so the the comparative bulk, the predominant whole, in comparison or contrast with a mere remnant. Also verse 7, Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it and the rest were blinded. So when he says all Israel, he's referring to the rest The fullness, the great majority of the unbelieving Jews in in, in his own day, that eventually the great majority would come to faith. Also, you can see verse 16, uh, well you can see in verse um, 14, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh and save some of them. Again, this reference to a part, a partial portion. Verse 16, for if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. So again, the comparison between the converted Jews in Paul's own day, a tiny little remnant, but they're the first fruits. This is the first harvest of Jewish souls. And there's coming a fullness of a, a, a spiritual harvest among the Jewish people. When the lump will be brought in. And so if the first fruits of this new covenant age harvest of Jewish souls is holy, then there's coming the fullness, the full harvest. The entire lump is holy. Uh, The root is holy, the branches are holy. In other words, he argues from from the part to then the whole. All Israel uh, will be saved. And then verse twenty-five. Notice again, blindness in part has happened to Israel, and so all Israel is contrasted with that mere part. Uh, There's a small part of unbelievers, and there's a greater part of uh, of, uh, a small part of believers, a greater part of unbelievers. Now, in Old Testament usage, listen to some of the ways that this phrase "all Israel" is used. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 16. And you can do a concordance study on this. There are literally numerous examples that are, that are edifying to consider uh, what Paul's drawing from when he speaks of all Israel and, and how that phrase is used of the ethnic national people group of the Jews so often in the Scriptures. But 1 Samuel 18, verse 16, it says, "...but all Israel and Judah loved David." because he went out and came in before them. Now, is that saying every single Israelite, every single Jew from the tribe of Judah loved David? No. We know that Saul, in fact, uh, my paragraph heading says Saul resents David. Not all of them, but all of them. The comparative whole. All Israel and Judah loved David. In other words, the vast majority of them loved David. And of course, this is what Paul is predicting will happen, prophesying will happen among Israel at some point in the future. That we'll be able to say, all Israel and Judah loves Christ. In the same way that all Israel and Judah loved David. Not that every single one, but the vast majority, the bulk of them, uh, loved him. And, and that's the idea the vast majority of them would profess, yes, we love David, we affirm him, we support him. And so the vast majority one day will profess David's greater son. So we could look at other examples as well, but that's the idea. It's the entire ethnic people group as a whole. Also, what does it mean, thirdly, that all Israel will be saved? Uh, Saved here has two aspects. Uh, it It refers to obviously salvation from sin, redemption, these kinds of things. Jesus saves his people from their sins uh, but no but it's important to understand that this is not political. This salvation of the Jews is not primarily political, so as to say as as many evangelicals think that that there's going to be this Uh, This uh, great political salvation of Israel, and and they use this to promote unbiblical forms of Zionism, and we need to support Israel at all costs because God is doing something in the state and political body of Israel. That's not the focus here. We're dealing with spiritual and ecclesiastical salvation, uh, not political salvation. And so this has a visible and an invisible aspect as salvation always does. First, it's Visible, Israel will be grafted back into the olive tree, and the olive tree, my friends, is the visible church. It's not the invisible church. Uh, That would be a problem if people were being cut off of the invisible church and losing their salvation uh, and having their election voided or something along those lines. No, this is the visible church, and what what it's saying is that even as Israel, as a nation, was. Uh, predominantly filled with covenant members in the past, even so, it one day through the gospel will be predominantly filled with visible church members uh, that are united to the visible church of the olive tree. And so it's dealing with cutting off and grafting back into the visible church. So it's a visible salvation incorporation into the visible church. Secondly, it's invisible salvation And this is just the more basic, obvious uh, explanation that they're saved from their sins. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 1, Paul prayed that they would be saved through faith in the gospel. And so this is telling us that all Israel has been blinded uh, for the most part to the gospel and all Israel as a predominant majority will be moved to profess faith in Christ and You see that imagery in verse 26 when he quotes from isaiah and jeremiah the deliverer will come out of zion he will turn away ungodliness from jacob for this and here he goes to jeremiah 31 for this is my covenant with them when i take away their sins so a vast multitude a vast majority of the unbelieving jews at some point will come to faith in christ Christ will be their deliverer. And notice verse 26, notice the way that He in some sense tweaks the language of Isaiah. If you were to go to Isaiah 59 verse 19, you would see that the Hebrew reads somewhat differently. Uh, Sorry, verse 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion. Paul doesn't say the Redeemer will come to Zion to those who turn from transgression in Jacob. He's not coming to Zion to those that are in Jacob. He's coming out of Zion to turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Now, why does he adapt the language in that way? He does it for this reason. Because at the point in which this happens, the Jews will be cut off the olive tree. The Jews today are not part of Zion, my friends. True Zionism is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, worshiping at Holy Mount Zion in the Christian church week in and week out. Israel today, unbelieving Israel, the unbelieving Jews of our day and of Paul's day were cut off of Zion. And so for Jesus to save them, um, he needs to come out of Zion. He comes out of the missionary uh, endeavors of the Christian church. He comes out of the Christian church to the Jewish people that have been cut off, that are now strangers to the covenants of promise, and he turns away ungodliness from Jacob and brings him back into Zion. And if we had time to chase down our Lord's quotation from Psalm 118, uh, when, when he quotes that in Matthew twenty three thirty nine. Uh, It's clear that when the Jews say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they say it from the house of God in Zion, in that quotation from Psalm 118. The deliverer comes out of the Christian church, which is the true Zion. He converts the Jews, he brings them back in, and he takes away their sins. That is the salvation of Israel from sin. And notice he says, All Israel will be saved. Wrapping up quickly here. All Israel will be saved. Uh, Presently, he says, though they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers, and uh, we long to see them converted. Our hearts go out to them. Uh, We long to see them converted because they're the future generations of the patriarchs and the people of the Messiah. And there's so much in, in, in the hearts of those that are now in glory Uh, the apostles, Paul himself, that they they long to see their kinsmen brought to faith, and we sympathize with that. And so we love them for that reason. We love them for the sake of the Gentiles, because when Israel comes in, it will be life from the dead for the Gentiles, and for all of our ethnic backgrounds, all of our people groups. And we love them for the sake of the glory of God, in ordaining these things. So they are beloved presently, but they are presently enemies of the Gospel, and enemies of Zion and of the true church of Jesus Christ. Judaism is a false religion. It is a man-made religion. It is not the religion of the Old Testament. And so we need to understand this is something that will be. It doesn't mean that now we all have to apply this passage by supporting uh, the Israeli state and their invasions of other countries and so on and so forth. And We need to take a certain political advocacy stance for Israel. None of these things are implied. Israel presently are enemies of God and enemies of His gospel. But our heart goes out to them to see them converted. And this will be the case. And when it is, then we'll be one in the family of God. And of course, it'll happen prior to the Lord's return. I mean, that's when salvation happens. Nobody's going to be saved after the second coming. This is going to happen beforehand. And so we need to be ready for it. We need to be anticipating it. We need to be praying for Israel's salvation. Uh, We need to reject, as I said, unbiblical forms of Zionism. I'm not sure what a biblical form of Zionism is, but I'm just covering myself because I'm not a political expert of any kind. Um, The fact is, we don't have a duty to support everything Israel does, but, but we need to pray for their salvation. And the fact is, forget about Israel, how about the Jews in Southeast Michigan? How about the thousands of Jews on our doorstep in Southfield, Michigan, that we long to see, embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and come to the joy of salvation through Him? Uh, We need to be praying for that. We need to be looking for opportunities to be engaged in that ministry. And we need to remain attentive to God's providence, giving glory to Him for His unsearchable wisdom. Isn't it amazing that one of the most powerful statements of gospel worship and of Christian doxology comes to us at the end of chapter 11? Uh, Isn't it interesting that the climax of Paul's section on hope comes at the end of when he's talked about the Gospel going to the Jews and the Gentiles and seeing the fullness of the Gentile nations come in. Paul had a heart for this Gospel expansion. He labored for it. He prayed for it. He strove to see it happen and he gloried in it. So I simply conclude with the words of the Apostle, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. Let's pray. Lord God, You are God and there is no other. No one can restrain Your hand nor say to You, What are You doing? For you have decreed and declared the end from the beginning. And you are working all things together for the good of your people, whom you have chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. And this theater of redemption, which is planet Earth, has become your means of manifesting your glory and your power and your wisdom that even these two groups that are so much at odds, the Jews and the Gentiles, might be used by You to promote one another's eternal well-being and national welfare. And O Lord, we long for the day when it is the case that Egypt and Assyria and Israel are all joined together through faith in the Prince of Peace We ask in His name. Amen.